Welcome to this week's message from Rabbi Kevin Solomon, Senior Rabbi of Congregation Beth Hillel in Roswell, Georgia. Beth Hillel is one of the largest Messianic Jewish synagogues in the world and provides a place where Jewish people can find the Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus in Hebrew, and retain their Jewishness. It's also where Gentiles worship and embrace the roots of the faith in drawing closer to God. Click the link in the description to support this ministry or to view our YouTube channel. Let's join Rabbi Kevin now as he shares this word from Scripture. We are thrilled to have one of our one of our own Mishpacha of our congregation speak. Ravi Goldberg is a second-generation Messianic Jew, the son of a Messianic rabbi. Ravi is the current president of the Young Messianic Jewish Alliance, which is the largest youth and young adult organization in the Messianic movement. In addition to his full-time job, he is also currently pursuing his MBA at Georgia Tech. Let's welcome Ravi Goldberg. Shabbat Shalom. I'm especially excited to be here tonight, and I just would like to take a look at the book of Daniel. And so if you want to turn there, that's the, uh, the, the passage that's been on my heart tonight. Uh, for a heavy reason, though, uh, this past week when I was going to night school, I got an email that on campus there would be someone speaking from Faces of October 7th, um, which are people who survived what Hamas did on October 7th. And so I was hearing the story of one of the survivors about what she went through and other relatives that she was with on that day. And that was around the time that Rabbi Kevin had reached out to me. And so I couldn't help but think of the book of Daniel, because as I opened up the book of Daniel, what I saw, what he went through was just so real. Like it wasn't this you know, crazy thing that happened thousands of years ago the trauma that he went through, the difficulty he went through at the beginning of the book, it just hit me. That story is in so many ways so similar to different stories right now. And looking at what Daniel had to overcome, I just said there is lessons here for how he survived the time he was living in that I think can help us in this time that we are living in. And so if you want to turn with me over to Daniel chapter 1, I'll read the first seven verses. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. God gave King Jehoiakim of Judah into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. He brought them into the land of Shinar to the house of his God and put the vessels into the treasure house of his God. Then the king told Ash. Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring some of the sons of Israel from royal descent and nobility, youths without any defect, handsome, proficient in all wisdom, knowledge, intelligent, and capable of serving in the king's palace. He was to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans, and the king allotted to them a daily portion from the king's delicacies and from the wine that he drank. 
and they were to be trained for three years, at the end of which they were to stand before the king. Now, among those from the sons of Judah who were taken were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief officer gave to them new names, to Daniel, Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So when I read that, it just hit me. Israel under attack and people taken away and kidnapped and brought to a different land. Now, different situations for sure, not the exact same thing. But I thought about what Daniel had to go through. Scholars and ancient historians will say, okay, if he was going to be serving King Nebuchadnezzar, going through this three-year training program, he was probably between the ages of 14 and 21. And he's probably most likely between the ages of 14 and 17. And to think about what Daniel went through, taken away from his family, stripped of his identity, given a new name. It hid me in all these things that he's facing, right? These new names, the erasure of his Jewish identity, right? And we live in a time where there's the erasure of the Jewish connection to the land of Israel, right? The Jewish people being indigenous to Israel, to the land is, is stripped away in so many people's minds. And as I just thought about the hostility that the Jewish people in Israel face around the world today, I thought about the hostility that Daniel was going into as he now begins his new life in Babylon. And so I want to look at the first two chapters of Daniel and to see two lessons for us that in the times that we live in and what we face, how we can learn from Daniel. And the first thing is I look at Daniel's life, the crazy thing that sticks out to me is he takes a risk over food. It says that for the three years that they're going to be serving the king, they're going to be fed from the king's table, from his top meats, from his top food. And the issue here is, you know, they just talked about the fact that the king had brought some of the things from the temple in Jerusalem to the temple of his gods. And so this is probably food that's been sacrificed to idols. And that's probably the situation he's dealing with. Might be unkosher meats, different meats he can't eat and things like that. And I think about it and I think this, you know, it's food though. He's risking his life over food. Um, but with, and, you know, it was, I want to, so I want to read that story with you because I think there's a lesson in it for, for us. And so we'll continue over uh, in, in, verse, in verse eight. It says, when they went over and they were given this food, as Daniel's in this training program, it says in Daniel 1, 8, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the king's delicacy or with the wine he was drinking. So he entreated the chief official for permission not to defile himself. Now God caused the chief official to show mercy and compassion to Daniel. But to the chief official said, but the chief official said to David, excuse me, the chief official said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king who allotted your food and your drink. Why should he see your faces looking poorly, unlike the other young people your age? Then the king would have my head and kill me because of you. Then Daniel said to the guard to whom the chief official had appointed over him, 
He said, please test your servants for 10 days, giving us just vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then compare our appearance to the appearance of the other people who eat the king's delicacies and treat your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, their appearance looked better and their bodies healthier than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the guard took away their delicacies and the wine they were supposed to drink and gave them vegetables instead. Now, I'm pretty sure all the other young people are not excited about this. Like, I imagine the food they had to eat was like something like Bone Steakhouse, like every single day. I mean, this is the top of the line. And now, thanks to Daniel, they get rice and beans and vegetables. And it's, you know, it's good. It's good. It's just not the same as Bones. And so I'm pretty sure the other young people there are not too excited about the situation here. But what strikes me is what Daniel is willing to risk. Like he goes up to the chief official and the chief official says, you know, I'd like to do this for you, but I might die if a bunch of the people the king is wanting to train for high positions are like sickly because they're not getting their protein. And, uh, and, and so he's afraid for his life and Daniel is taking a risk. And yet Daniel chooses to take this risk. And as I think about the risk that Daniel chose to take, it reminded me of a book I've heard about in the past uh, few weeks called The Art of Being Unreasonable. And it's like the autobiography of Eli uh, Brode um, and his business advice. And Eli Brode was the son of Jewish Lithuanian immigrants to the U.S., and he became the first person, I think still the only person in the U.S., to create from scratch two Fortune 500 companies and two separate industries. He's an incredible businessman. And, uh, and he writes this book, The Art of Being Unreasonable. And it comes from a paperweight that his, a paperweight that his wife had given him in 1954. And on the paperweight, it had this quote. It said, the reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable man persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. And therefore, all progress depends upon the unreasonable man. And so Eli uh, Broad's entire thing is to, is to get, is to, for his success in business, is to be unreasonable. And he says, there's a difference between being unreasonable and irrational. He said, I'm not talking about being irrational and illogical. I'm saying breaking the limits of what's acceptable. So Eli, in his first job, he got fired from his first accounting job because he demanded a raise too many times and his boss was sick of him and fired him. And he grew up in a thing where they just did unreasonable things, right? The son of Lithuanian Jewish immigrants, and they ran a Christmas store, Christmas decoration store, even though they never celebrated Christmas and they had no experience in running a retail store. So he just grew up in a family where they did unreasonable things. And his entire thing about what brought him ahead to, you know, running these two Fortune 500 companies, building them from scratch, was being unreasonable and taking risks that others might not make sense. But he said it's not that he doesn't look at the facts. He's grounded in reality. He looks at the facts, but he reframes the facts to look at it in a way that nobody has considered before. And when he looks in a new way, he's willing to do other things that other people find unreasonable. And so I look at what Daniel did, right? Taking this risk of his life over what food he eats sounds unreasonable. 
But I realized the way he looks at the facts is that he belongs to God. And that if God is real, if the God of Israel is real, then that shapes his life and everything else. And so while following God may look crazy, based on the fact that of who God is, he takes risks that nobody else takes. And as I look at that, I look at the fact that he takes this risk with his life over food um, and he's willing to say, I'm God, I'm going to follow you with my entire life. And looking at the scriptures about this, one of the interesting things are Jewish, Jewish tradition is it says Daniel uh, decided in his heart, resolved not to defile himself. And Jewish tradition and Jewish rabbis teach that when it says he resolved, he resolved, it's literally in the Hebrew, he put it on his heart. And it's the same words that we read in the Shema and via Hafta where it says, and these commandments that I give you today are to be upon your heart. And so we also know that Daniel was someone who it says later on in Daniel 6, prayed three times a day facing Jerusalem. And for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, if not longer, the Jewish people have prayed facing Jerusalem, praying the Shema and via Hafta. And so the Jewish tradition is that as Daniel is now in the king's palace and he's now in this training program, in his life, he reads the Shema and via Hafta and his personal time with God. And he reaches this part in these commandments that I give you this day are to be on your heart. And it strikes him to resolve in his heart not to defile himself. That he is going to be committed to following God and giving him his life no matter what the risks are. And I think one thing about it is we realize that as we follow God today, there are differences about what it means to follow God uh, for Jewish people versus what it means to follow God for the wider body of Messiah. But I think there's something interesting about that there. And, and so if um, I think on the screen, it'll turn over to Acts 15. And in the new members class at Beth Hillel, it talks about uh, the God's calling for Jewish followers of Yeshua is not to lose their Jewish identity and to assimilate. And God's calling for people from the nations who follow Yeshua is not to assimilate and become Jews, but to embrace their own God-given ethnic identity. And the beauty of the body of Messiah is that we come together, each of us not losing our God-given identity, but embracing it and coming together. And that is the beauty of the body of Messiah. But in Acts 15, where it goes into this, where it talks about, okay, do Gentile believers who follow Yeshua need to become, need to become Jews? We'll just turn there quickly where it talks about the letter they sent out where they say, no, Gentiles don't need to become Jews. Because even though he's right, they say Gentiles who come to faith don't need to keep kosher in the same way Jewish people do. It's interesting that food is brought up again. And so in Acts 15, beginning in verse 23, it says the emissaries and elders send this letter out to the Gentile brothers in Antioch, Syria, and to and Sicily. And it says, greetings. We have heard from, from some among us that you have been troubled with words disturbing your souls, although we gave them no authorization. So it seemed good to us to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who risked their lives for the name of our Lord Yeshua, the Messiah. So we've sent them along with Judah and Silas, who themselves report the same thing from our mouth. It seems good to the Ruach HaKodesh and to us not to place on you any greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, 
from things strangled and from sexual immorality. By keeping these things, you will do well. So it talks about to these new Gentile believers, right? That God has now required them to live Jewish lives and to do all these things that were identity markers for the Jewish people. But it's interesting to me that three of the four things still have to do with food, right? Abstaining from food offered to idols, food with blood and food from animals that have been strangled. And it just, it strikes me that it's a similar thing to Daniel, even though it's a different situation, that in our lives, there are things that just seem so small. Why should this matter? And yet Daniel says, faithfulness to God means even these things, I'm going to be faithful. And so right in in Acts chapter 15, it's these things with food, but it's um, about food offered to idols, but also about immorality. And we can say, well, it's just food. It's just our bodies. And yet what God said is these things matter. And when God says that, that reframes thing that he, that these things have significance, meaning that these are part of what God calls us to be set apart as a people who are other and different and like him. And so even in these things that could look small, Daniel takes these risks. He makes these unreasonable asks. And when he does this, he sets himself apart. That as he stays true to God in Daniel chapter one and resolves not to defile himself with the food offered to idols, as he does this, he he sets himself apart in his life as a testimony to the God of Israel that his faithfulness to living a Jewish life and his faithfulness to the God of Israel speaks to the fact that even with Israel under attack, even in the fact that he's been taken out of Israel, it's a testimony to the God of Israel and that he is the living God. And so the first thing that I see as I look at Daniel is that just, just like Eli Broad in the art of being unreasonable, Daniel is willing to take these unreasonable risks in following God. And as I look at Daniel's life, I also notice something interesting about him and that he has this unanxious presence in that all that goes on in his life, this unanxious presence. In a second, I want to look at a few different passages in Daniel chapter one and chapter two that looks at Daniel's response to some really intense situations. But in these things, he has an unanxious presence. And I heard about this term unanxious presence from Rabbi Edwin Friedman. He's passed away, but he was a conservative rabbi and family therapist and organizational consultant in Washington, D.C. for many years. And he wrote a book called A Failure of Nerve. And it's a leadership book, right? He does in his he did in his organizational consulting but it comes from lessons he learned from family therapy and from leading his synagogue in DC. And in the book, A Failure of Nerve, he says, the primary issue where people fail as leaders is not because they didn't have enough information. It's not because they didn't have enough skills or they didn't have the right techniques. It's because they lacked the nerve and the presence to stand firm in the midst of other people's emotional anxiety and reactivity. That in life, it is so easy to react to other people's reactions, to let our responses and how we handle ourselves be driven by by reactions to other people, to be driven by anxiety we have, by anger that we have, or for other people's applause. And yet, 
what Daniel did was different. He lived with this unanxious presence. The, no matter the anxiety and fear around him, no matter the chaos around him, no matter if he did things differently, he would get the applause of people and rewards. He had this unanxious presence in the midst of that. And God was able to use him to do incredible things. And he was not driven by anxiety, anger, or applause. And so I want to look at a few passages that show how Daniel was set apart and had this unanxious presence and how he lived his life. In Daniel chapter 1, if you want to turn to verse 10, we'll read verse, uh, verses 10 to 13. It says, But the chief official said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king, that if I don't give you the food I'm supposed to give you, he's going to kill me, right? But it just says Daniel's reply is then to turn to him in the garden and say, please test us for 10 days. The guard is afraid of the king. And yet Daniel's actions don't have that same level of fear. He's like, please give us a test for 10 days. There's a calmness in the midst of this situation. If we turn over to Daniel chapter 2, reading verses 1 to 3, it says, In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and sleep escaped him. So the king issued an order to summon the magicians, the astrologers, sorcerers, and Chaldeans in order to explain to the king his dream. And when they came and stood before the king, he said to them, I've dreamed a dream and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. It seems like the king has had this nightmare, these night terrors recurring over and over again, but he can't remember exactly what this dream is, but he knows there's something there because it's happening over and over again and it's driving him crazy. And so he says to them, I need you to both tell me the dream and the interpretation it seems like he doesn't remember enough of the dream to recall it, but he needs it. So he needs both from them. And they tell him, listen, no one's ever asked for that. We can't do that. And so picking up in uh, Daniel chapter two, verse nine, the king said, if you do not reveal the dream to me, there's only one verdict for you. You have conspired to say something false and fraudulent. So tell me the dream. And then I know that you can tell me its meaning. And the Chaldeans, the astrologers, and the sorcerers answered the king saying, there's no man on earth who can meet your demand. No great king, however great or mighty, has ever asked for such a thing from a magician or an astrologer. What the king asked for is too difficult. There is no one who could declare to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with mortals. Because of this, the king became furiously angry and gave orders to execute all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be slaughtered. And they also saw Daniel and his companions to execute them, right? His leadership in his life for the king Nebuchadnezzar is now driven out of this anxiety and this anger. And yet we see something different in how Daniel responds. Picking up in verse 14, then Daniel spoke with tact and discretion to Arioch, who is the captain of the king's guard and who had set and who had been sent out to execute the wise men of Babylon. He spoke up to the king's captain and said, why is the king's decree so urgent? He's about to be killed. And here's a calm question. Why, why is it so urgent? 
Then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. So Daniel went in and he asked the king to grant him time so that he might to close the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house, informed his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter so they could request mercy from the God of heaven concerning the mystery so Daniel and his friends would not perish along with the wise men of Babylon. The first thing it says is that when they come to round them up to kill them, it says Daniel spoke with tact and discretion. The words in Aramaic basically have this meaning of he spoke with intentionality, that he determined beforehand how he was going to react to really intense situations and discretion that he was also going to have sensitivity to what was going on, that he had resolved beforehand that he was both going to be intentional and sensitive within the situation not reacting out of anxiety or anger like everybody else around him. And it says later that during that night, it's the mystery of the dream is revealed to Daniel in a vision and Daniel blesses God. And then let's pick up in verse 24. Then Daniel went to Ariok, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. And he said to them, do not destroy the wise men Bring me in before the king, and I'll declare the interpretation to the king. So Ariok quickly ushered Daniel into the king's presence and said to him, I have found the man, I have found a man among the sons of the exiles from Judah who can make known the interpretation to the king. It's interesting to me when when God reveals the dream and the interpretation to Daniel, it says he went to the captain of guard. And when he tells the captain guard, the captain guard hurriedly, quickly runs to tell the king, right? It's not even the guard's life who's on the hook. And yet he's hurriedly, quickly running to tell the king. It doesn't have that same sense of this crazy hurry with Daniel. That even in this intense situation, he has this unanxious presence that his response to situations is not a reaction to the anxiety or to the anger or to the chaos going on. But his actions are also not driven, not only his actions are not driven by anxiety and anger, but his actions are also not driven by applause from other people. Picking up in verse 26, the king says to Daniel, are you able to reveal to me the dream and its interpretation? And Daniel answers the king saying, the mystery that you have inquired about is such that neither the wise man, astrologers, magicians, or sorcerers can disclose to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar the things that will happen in the latter days, the dream and the visions that were in your head as you lay on your bed. To you, O king, as you lay on your bed, came these thoughts about what's going to pass in the future. And the revealer of mysteries has made known to you what is going to happen. But as for me, this mystery is not revealed to me because I possess more wisdom than any other living person. But in order that the king may know the interpretation and understand the thoughts of your heart. Right? The the guard says to the king, I've discovered a man who can tell you. And Daniel doesn't say, yep, I can tell you. He says, there is a God in heaven who wants to reveal this to you, right? The king says, right, if you can't tell me the dream and the interpretation, I'm going to kill all the wise men. But if you tell me, I'm going to reward you like crazy. 
But Daniel is not in it for the rewards or for what could happen or for the applause. He doesn't take any of the credit. And when he finishes the interpretation in verse 45, he says the same thing. God has made known to you, King, what's going to happen. I haven't made known to you. God's made it known to you. He's not doing it for the applause or for the credit. Which it just is funny to me, right? He says, I'm not able to tell this to you because I'm any wiser or smarter than anybody else. And yet it's funny because for me in Daniel chapter one, it mentioned that God gave Daniel all sorts of wisdom and proficiency and that he was 10 times better than any of the other people in his training class. 10 times better than all the other wise men and magicians in the realm. And yet he doesn't take his identity in that. His identity is not in being the smartest person in the room. Where Daniel came from, this is the cream of the crop. These were the best and brightest. It says they took the smartest people from Judah, the best looking people. I mean, these are the models who went to Harvard. I mean, these are the top people. And yet he doesn't take the credit. His identity is not in those things. His identity is in God, in this difficult situation. And he doesn't take, he doesn't do it for the applause or for the rewards. As we keep reading in Daniel 46, it says that after Daniel gave the king the interpretation, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and paid homage to Daniel and gave orders for an offering and incense to be provided for him. In a response, the king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this secret. And the king promoted Daniel and lavished on him many marvelous gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief over all the wise men of Babylon. But what does it say? Daniel's response is what he does next. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of Babylon while Daniel remained at the royal court. He's not doing it for the applause or for the accolades. His first response is to ask for his friends who've been with him, who've been serving faithfully to join him in this. That as he's going about this, it's not a life that is driven by the applause and his identity is not in these things. And as I look at Daniel, I say, how does he have this unanxious presence? How is it that he's able to take risks even with things that seem crazy like the food? How is it that in the face of the anxiety and the chaos and the anger of the king and the reactions of everybody around him, he has this unanxious presence? What Daniel goes through is insane and he's going through it at about 15 years old. How does Daniel have this unanxious presence? It's interesting to me that in the scriptures, Daniel is not found in the prophets, right? We have the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. But the book of Daniel isn't in the prophets. And Jewish rabbis and sages throughout the centuries have said, yeah, Daniel isn't exactly a prophet. And the reason they give is they say, well, prophets were those who went to the people of Israel, to the Jewish people, and called them to return to God, to turn from injustice, to turn from idolatry, and to turn to God. They were giving this call to the people of Israel, to the leadership of Israel. But Daniel's role is different. He's not speaking 
to the people of Israel to return to God. He's in this position serving the king of Babylon. And Daniel is given this prophetic insight into the end times and into Mashiach and into the future. But he's not a prophet to Israel. And so his, the book of Daniel is not found in the prophets. It's found in the writings in the Tanakh. It's found in the writings. But one thing that the Jewish rabbis and sages like Rashi have said is that while Daniel wasn't a prophet, Daniel was a man in whom there was the Ruach HaKodesh. And it's interesting to me, right, that when King Nebuchadnezzar asked for the interpretation of the dream, the astrologers and sorcerers and the experts of that day say, no one can do that. That secret lies with the gods. And later on in chapter five, when talking about Daniel, they're going to say, well, there's one person who can help you with that, Daniel, in whom lives the spirit of the gods. Even the astrologers, the magicians of Babylon knew that the Ruach HaKodesh, the spirit, the Holy Spirit was in Daniel. And because Daniel has the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, in these situations, he has a non-anxious presence because he's connected to the presence of God. I love how in Daniel, in all of these chapters, in each of these visions, it points to Messiah, to this dream the king can't understand. Part of the interpretation is that there is a going to be a king coming, it says, but it describes him, a stone not cut by human hands that becomes a mountain. A king not from human origins. A supernatural Messiah. In all of these visions that Daniel has, he has this messianic hope and promise that he looks forward to. And it's his trust in the messianic hope and promise that allows him to be connected to God and to have God's spirit and God's presence. And so that in every situation, his life isn't driven by anxiety or by anger or by applause, but by the presence of God and being with him. And as I look at the chaos in the world today, as I look at the hostility that Israel faces, the Jewish people face, the hostility and the worry that we have for those who support Israel or love the God of Israel and follow Yeshua. I think about Daniel's example, that we can have the courage to take risks, that we can have an unanxious presence as we trust in Messiah and the connection to the Holy Spirit in every situation. And for those of you listening on the live stream or here in person, Daniel's life is one where he's not overridden by anxiety or anger or chaos or applause because all the guilt, shame, and fear he faces, he releases to God. And the call and the invitation that God gives all of us today is to cast our cares upon him to trust the Messiah, to let go of all the guilt, shame, and fear that can be used to hold us back. And when we do that, anxiety, anger, and applause don't have to drive our lives.
And as we close the service and go into the rest of the weekend, I just want to pray for us that we can live lives in chaos with an unanxious presence because we seek first the presence of God. Abba, we thank you that you are our father. God, we thank you that we can be connected with you through the Messiah, through what Yeshua has done. God, on this Shabbat, we just take this day to give you the anxieties we face in life. To give you, God, the things that overwhelm us. And to be filled afresh with your spirit. Thank you, God, for the gift of Messiah. Thank you for the gift of your spirit. And thank you that you allow us to be an unanxious presence in the world today. In Yeshua's name, amen. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Rabbi Kevin. Please like, subscribe, and share this link with a friend. We would be grateful to receive your tax-deductible gift to further the good news of Messiah Yeshua. To make a contribution, please click on the PayPal link in the description. Also, to view our regular services, click the link in the description for our YouTube channel. If you would like more information about Yeshua the Messiah or how you can become part of our Bethlehem family, please visit our website at www.bethhalel.org. That's B-E-T-H-H-A-L-L-E-L dot O-R-G. Or call 770-641-3000. If you are in the metro Atlanta area, please visit us for an Arab Shabbat service, Friday nights at 8 o'clock, or Shabbat services, Saturday mornings at 11. God bless and Shalom. Nine, nine, nine.